The lack of accountability for police misconduct is an issue that has been prominent in the United States for a long time. The 2020 murder of George Floyd at the hands of police and the resulting protest movement have brought it even more to the forefront in recent months. But what research is being conducted to create a more transparent system of justice in policing? Welcome to Tiger Prince. I'm your host, Hope Perry. Today on the show, a recent Princeton grad who conducted research on police protection and protests. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us something fun you've been up to this summer? I'm Allie McGowan. My full name's Elena, but I am from just outside of Princeton, New Jersey, so didn't travel far for college. And something fun I did this summer, my sisters and I are all moving out at the same time, so I have been apartment shopping in four different cities. <laughs> I asked Allie to walk me through the central question of her research. I was interested in what she was doing to examine the connection between police accountability policies and the Black Lives Matter movement. My thesis was called Policing the Police, and I looked into the investigatory protections that are offered to police officers, either through collective bargaining agreements or their Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights. And I was looking at whether the Black Lives Matter movement, as one of its main goals is to increase police accountability, has had an impact in reducing the number of those officer-exclusive protections. Um, So things that civilians aren't even allowed in the investigatory process, things like delaying their investigation by by 48 hours or having access to evidence before they interview with the internal affairs. Uh, team. And yeah, I guess that's like the gist of what my thesis was. My data was pretty insignificant. There was few changes over the course of the past eight years of Black Lives Matter. But it is important to note that a lot of contracts that were supposed to be negotiated in 2020 didn't end up happening because of other concerns like the pandemic. That was more so the focus of the government to to address those before they re-signed a new contract. It may seem to some that Black Lives Matter is a new movement, especially in light of recent events, but it began, like Ali said, eight years ago. So I asked Ali to contextualize that history in a way that's relevant to her research. So the Black Lives Matter movement really began in 2013, following the death of Trayvon Martin by the then watchman, or night watchman, George Zimmerman. And one of the leaders of the movement tweeted out Black Lives Matter, and it became this rallying cry. And over the course of the past eight years, we've seen this rise and fall in activity with the movement following major, major murders of uh, Black black people in America. Specifically, there was a huge heightened, uh, there was huge increase in activity following the death of Michael Brown, of Freddie Gray, and all of those have, and there have been so many more, but uh, those are just two examples, but all of those have sort of led to some sort of policy change or have, there's been this push for policy changes in the wake of those murders. So in the case of Freddie Gray, for example, that was in Baltimore and Maryland has a law enforcement officer bill of rights. And the prosecutor in Maryland really pushed to, to change that law enforcement officer bill of rights because of the barriers that she faced in trying to prosecute the officers involved in the death of Freddie Gray. So so we've seen like that happening, and so I thought that it would be interesting to see whether or not those changes have been have taken place, you know, uh, around the country, not just in these small cities in which, or not small cities, pretty large cities in which these big incidents have happened. And so, yeah, so using the Black Lives Matter movement was sort of that that time period, that time frame where you would expect to see more changes, and that became the basis of my thesis. Ali's research was interesting to me because she could actually study a real cause and effect. Though listeners, it's important to note that she looked at data prior to the protests of 2020, since that data wasn't available to her at the time. Still, I wanted to know more about policing standards, so I asked Ali to explain the difference between a law enforcement officer bill of rights and a police collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, so sort of each department sort of runs differently depending on the state that they're in. So there are 21 states, I believe, that have Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, and it's a state statute, so state legislation that puts it into effect, and it 
determines like the rights that officers have. Some of them include disciplinary procedure, which is what I was specifically studying, but it's like an extra a lot of it includes, you know, what would be found for normal for a normal bill of rights. Like they have rights as employees, but also rights as government employees, but they're doing a tough job. They have a specific job and their job includes them limiting the rights of others. And so it offers them protections given that they are, that their job does sometimes entail limiting other people's liberties. And so that bill of rights just outlines everything that they are protected against. And in some cases includes their disciplinary procedures. Most disciplinary procedures, I would say, I found in the collective bargaining agreements, but many of them did include provisions, not so much like access to evidence, but being able to delay investigation is often found in law enforcement officer bill of rights and other measures like that. I know from experience that it can be really difficult to access government documents like the ones Allie used. So I asked her if she ran into any difficulties during the research process. I sent out 80 FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. And that was, I mean, it's a tough process to like be able to contact all these cities to get these documents. It was also at the height of Black Lives Matter. So these cities may not want to be releasing these documents. I had a couple cities that, you know, El Paso, for example, gave me an 80-page fully redacted contract. So it was 80 pages of just blacked out script. And so it was just a mess to try to get all these documents together. And then having to read three contracts per city I studied. Some of them I didn't even get in time for my thesis. I sent all of these requests in, you know, the beginning of January uh, for most of them. And, you know, I, there, I think it was like two weeks ago, I got an email from Phoenix with their with their contracts. I'm like, I can't, what am I supposed to do with this? But um, yeah, so definitely the data collection part, the FOIA process was tough. As a fellow student, I can imagine how frustrating it must have been for Allie to be blocked during her research. And also concerning, if a city doesn't want to reveal the terms of their police contract, what does that say about the content of the contract? Thankfully, Ali was able to get other records, and she used an approach called difference indifference to examine the provisions laid out in police collective bargaining agreements and officer bills of rights. I'd never heard of this before, and I was really interested to know how she was able to conduct a quantitative analysis when working with documents like this. Yeah, so difference indifference looks at the way that data changes over time. So I went in with contracts that were negotiated in 2013 and contracts that were negotiated in 2020 or the contract that was in effect in 2020 so that I could look at the changes that occurred because Black Lives Matter essentially began in 2014. It really became an organization in 2014. So I saw the before and the after and was able to look at the difference between the two. I also used contracts from 2011 just to like get an idea of, of where these cities were at before the movement even began. And yeah, so it allowed me to see the changes, uh, the impact that Black Lives Matter would have had on um, the changes in these provisions. I studied a total of 79 cities. Um, some of them had collective bargaining agreements. Some of them have just law enforcement officer bill of rights. And then 61% had both a collective bargaining agreement and a law enforcement officer bill of rights. And so I read through all of them for each of those years. So for 2011, 2013, and 2020, and then the law enforcement officer bill of rights that were in effect uh, from 2011, 2013, and 2020. And from there, I sort of coded whether or not it was in existence or each of these provisions were in existence or not in existence. And so there's a giant spreadsheet of going through each of my topics. There are seven of them. So delays, access to information, whether or not they're able to arbitrate, to do arbitration in the way that they are disciplined, all these different factors. And there's so many more that I could have studied, but seven seemed like a good number. Um, and so I coded those pretty much one zero one zero one zero if they had it or if they didn't. And for the delays, for example, there was also a second column for 
the number of hours they were allowed to delay from, you know, 24 hours in some cities up to 30 days in New Orleans. And that allowed me to then put that into an equation of like put it into the difference and difference of the number of cities that had it, the number of cities that did not. And over those years, it was insignificant because there were very few changes over the course of those eight years. But that was sort of the mathematical approach to it. I didn't necessarily find it surprising that very few shifts had taken place over the course of eight years, but I was really interested to know if she had found any significant connections between the Black Lives Matter movement and any changes that had taken place. The Black Lives Matter protest data, but that came from two different data sets that I combined. So I had all the years from 2013 to 2020. And yeah, so they just tracked the number of protests in each city. An interesting point, it was all like physical demonstrations. So people that were marching or they had some sort of meeting point and they had a rally in that area, but didn't track social media, for example, which is a huge limitation of my data because social media became such a huge part of protesting in 2020. But so it was all physical demonstrations or in-person demonstrations. And that I used that as a measure of either high protest activity or low protest activity. And then the cities that were in high protest activity, I looked at separately than the cities that were in low protest activity. From there, I could tell which which cities, which group of cities had the most change. And contrary to my hypothesis, we actually saw more change in the cities that had low protest activity than in the cities that had very high protest activity. I was surprised by this, and when Ali first mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, I know that she was too. It's hard to look at the history of protest movements and their effects and then be faced with this quantitative conclusion. The key to successful activism is persistence. Still, when change isn't taking place after several years of work, it can obviously be discouraging. So I asked Ali what her takeaway was for activists moving forward. I think, you know, for activists moving forward, one thing we have to do is is figure out how to get ourselves at the table and in the room. All but 12 cities allow for negotiation to happen. All but 12 cities um, have negotiation behind closed doors, which means we can't get to the table. We can't be sitting in on that process. We don't know if the people we're electing into office are you know, living up to those promises that they made during the campaign, campaign trail of trying to you know, enact these changes. So if it's everything's happening behind closed doors, there's nothing there's nothing, there's not much we can do about enacting that change. And so I think transparency is going to be a huge thing to start advocating for. Um, And we're starting to see that a little bit more. New York, for example, removed provision 50A, which now allows for police disciplinary records to be made public. But that's just like getting just, just the start of it. So I think there needs to be a huge focus on transparency. And out of that, we can then negotiate for accountability because so much of this process is behind closed doors. And that makes it very difficult to understand why major cities, major protest cities like Minneapolis, like Los Angeles, like New York haven't implemented, like a lot of Texas cities as well, haven't implemented these changes. So I think that there's a lot of room for further analysis, especially in looking at, you know, are those lower protest, lower protest activity areas, are they more transparent? You know, we, there's so many more, there's so much more research that needs to be done in this area. And I I think I outlined like maybe 20 different um, possible areas for future study, like throughout my thesis, not just in that one section, but yeah, there's definitely a need for more research. And I think that there needs to be more focus on like power mapping and, and organizing such that we're attacking things in a row. Like we can't attack accountability until we attack transparency. And so there's an order of things in order to see that we need in order to see results. So yeah, I would say transparency needs to be the main focus of activism going forward. While some changes take a while, some of what Ali was studying was being altered in real time. 
At one point, she even felt she might need to add a section to her thesis. It was challenging because so much was changing as I was writing my thesis and doing my data collection. But it was also like great to see how much was happening in legislation and in policy regarding police brutality, but also just disciplinary procedures. Like two days before I turned in my thesis, Maryland repealed their law enforcement officer bill of rights, which was crazy because they were the first ones to do it back in, I think, 1973. And I like, so like two days before I turned in my thesis, I was like running to Firestone, like trying to like add a chapter about Maryland because I hadn't expected that to happen. I didn't even know that was in that was in the works in Maryland. And then like, I think a couple weeks before my thesis, DC removed disciplinary procedure from their contract. So police no longer could con- could uh, negotiate their disciplinary procedures. And so there's just so much changing. And it was a challenge because I had to keep up with all of that and make sure that I was on top of it so that when I turned in my thesis, it was the most up-to-date relevant material. But it was also very rewarding to see that like my thesis was so relevant to what's happening and there's so much change going on and so much like I think by the time I turned to my thesis there were 193 bills across the country in state and federal um, in the state and federal legislatures that were about police discipline and police accountability so yeah definitely a challenge but also very rewarding to see how relevant my topic was I asked Ali if there were any resources she'd recommend for learning more about police accountability Yeah, a major resource is, um, it's called Check the Police. Um, It's an organization that was put together to collect these contracts and to uh, highlight research in this area. And it was very helpful to me. And they have a lot of the most up-to-date contracts so you can see what your city is doing and where you might be able to to be an activist locally. Yeah, I would say that Check the Police is probably the best resource. Ali also made it clear that there's still more research to be done, especially related to unpacking the impact of the protests in 2020. I also think that if this is of any interest to anyone, like this is going to be such a good topic to research for the next 20 years. And a part of me wishes I could have done my thesis like three years from now because I would have been able to look at the impact of 2020. But I mean, there's so much research to be done. And if it's anything of interest to you, you're going to be able to find so many topics. And we need more research in this area because so many politicians rely on research for making choices, making decisions. And so yeah, so I think Check the Police is a good resource to start, but also do your own research if you're able to, because there it's such an interesting topic. It's a little bit of a sad topic too, just understanding how, how much has gone wrong in the area of of building the police and the professionalization of the police starting in the 70s or 60s and 70s. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of room for further research. Ali is now working at Legal Outreach as the Director of Civic Engagement and Social Justice. She's working with high school students on creating social justice and civic engagement initiatives that they can implement. To read more, check out Ali's policy profile on our Instagram, at Princeton SPIA. That's at Princeton SPIA. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ali. Thank you. Thanks for joining my exploration of Ali's research. I hope you learned something new today. You've been listening to Tiger Prince, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is edited by me, Hope Perry, and produced by me with support from Rose Huber. Special thanks to other School of Public and International Affairs interns, Jenna Thompson, Reese Williams, and Amon Kosru. The content you've just heard does not reflect the views of Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs. Be sure to check out our other podcasts at spia.princeton.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.